Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3 for our time of study in the Word uh, this morning. Revelation chapter 3. Uh, We're doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation, and as we continue in our study of this book this morning, we come to Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, and my goal this morning is to cover verses uh, 1 through 6, and the title of the message is A Wake-Up Call to a Dead Church. A Wake-Up Call to a Dead Church. Speaking of wake-up calls, uh, Daylight Savings Time ends next weekend in the wee hours of the morning next Sunday, so your clock is going to fall backward and you will get an extra hour of sleep. So you should have no trouble next Sunday waking up and being here uh, on time. But speaking of waking up, my, my wife and I have four grown children, and I'm pretty sure that all four of of our children loved me when they were growing up in our home. But one moment of the day when I am sure that they did not love me was when I would go into their room in the morning to wake them up. They thought, and they would tell me, that I was too loud and obnoxious when I woke them up. And they actually had a point. If one of my sons was slow in getting out of bed... I would often come into his room and start hitting the walls incessantly, telling him that I was looking for the studs behind the drywall. (laughs) If my youngest daughter was slow in getting out of bed, I would come into her room with empty water bottles in my hands, and I would crinkle those water bottles in her ears until she would get out of bed. It was my specific goal to be as irritating as possible until they got out of bed and fled from their room to get away from me. There's nothing more grating than a wake-up call when someone would prefer to sleep. But a wake-up call is often what we need for our own good. And this is what Jesus provides for the church of Sardis in our passage today. And his words to them must have fell pretty hard on them. But Jesus also speaks to them words of hope and love. The original city of Sardis, you must know, sat on top of a hill that stood 1,500 feet above the valley below with steep cliffs on three of its sides. And because of these steep cliffs, the citizens of Sardis throughout their history, often thought that they were invincible, but they were wrong. In 546 B.C., King Cyrus had his soldiers climb up one of the cliffs and attack the city while the citizens of Sardis slept, and they overtook the city to the stunned amazement of everyone. A little over 350 years later, Antiochus the Great had some of his men climb one of the steep cliffs, while the city of Sardis slept. And they entered the city and opened its gates from within. And by morning light, the armies of Antiochus had come pouring in and conquered the city. In both of these cases, the people of Sardis were in grave danger, yet they thought that they were safe. And because of their lack of watchfulness, they were overtaken. In A.D. 17, Sardis was destroyed by an awful earthquake, which so ruined the city and the surrounding areas that 40 years later, a Roman historian described the destruction from that earthquake as the greatest disaster in human memory. And that was A.D. 17. The Roman government gave a very generous grant to the city of Sardis, enabling the city to rebuild and achieve their vision of making Sardis great again. Sardis was a pagan city as well, given over to the worship of various gods and also to the worship of the Roman emperor. 
And in this pagan and prosperous city of Sardis was a church, a church that in some ways had taken on some of the characteristics of the city itself. To the casual observer, this church looked very much alive and had even earned for itself a reputation for being alive. Yet we're going to see this morning that this church was virtually dead spiritually and its flame was about to go out. Most of the members of this church we're going to see were in a very bad place spiritually with only a few members of this church who are as yet unstained by whatever the sinful compromise that is plaguing the majority of this congregation. Some of us would have looked upon this church and written it off, but Jesus doesn't. In our passage today, he dictates a letter to this church of Sardis and performs an intervention in an attempt to rescue this church and rekindle its flame before it died out altogether. Perhaps you're here this morning and you have strayed from the Lord and your Christian life is a shadow of its former self. You are all but spiritually dead and you fear that your situation is beyond remedy. I'm here to tell you that it's not. What Jesus says to the church of Sardis can be of immense help to you this morning. And it's a divine appointment that you are here today. The way we're going to break down our study of this passage is we're going to observe seven actions of Jesus designed to motivate a dead church to wake up and overcome. Seven actions of Jesus designed to motivate a dead church to wake up and overcome. Number one, he presents himself to them as the one who has the sevenfold spirit and the seven stars. He presents himself to them as the one who has the sevenfold spirit and the seven stars. Observe what he says to the Apostle John in verse 1. He says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. We saw reference to the seven spirits of God back in Revelation chapter 1 verse 4 several weeks ago. And we understood that expression at that time to speak of the sevenfold spirit of God. And we saw that this expression is likely a reference back to the description of the Holy Spirit that is given in Isaiah chapter 11 verses 2 through 5. Where we literally find a sevenfold description of the Holy Spirit as the spirit of the Lord, of wisdom, of understanding, of counsel, of strength, of knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord. And here in Revelation 3, 1, Jesus seems to be saying that the spirit is all of these things described in Isaiah 11. And Jesus is saying, it is I who have this sevenfold spirit at my disposal to impart or dispense as I please. It's a good thing that Jesus, this life-giving spirit at his disposal, he's talking to a church that not only needs words from him, but also a fresh infusion of this very spirit to rejuvenate them. In verse 1, Jesus also presents himself to the church of Sardis as the one having the seven stars. We saw back in chapter 1 that Jesus holds these seven stars in his right hand. And in Revelation 1.20, Jesus says that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And we've learned that the word angel speaks of messengers, and we've understood Jesus to be referring to the pastors of these seven churches. Which means that here in Revelation 3.1, Jesus is saying that he has these pastors in his possession. They belong to him and not to anyone else. 
Their job is to communicate his messages as he delivers them, exactly as he delivers them. And it's their job to lead the church in giving heed to whatever it is that Jesus says, even if what Jesus is saying to them and to their churches is hard for them to hear. And to the Apostle John, Jesus says, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, he who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars says this. And this brings us to the next act of Jesus as he seeks to motivate a dead church to wake up and overcome. Number two, he faults them. He faults or he criticizes them for being practically dead. He faults them for being practically dead. Observe what he says to them toward the end of verse 1. He says, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Jesus starts off by saying, I know your deeds. And these deeds that he knows are probably a mixture of both good and evil deeds. This is a church we just read, that has a reputation for being spiritually alive, so it must have been doing enough good deeds to earn this reputation. But Jesus knows the true quality of their deeds and even sees what is lacking in them, and Jesus also knows their evil deeds. And he knows something else about this church. He knows their deeds, but he also knows their reputation among men. He says to them, I know that you have a name, that you are alive. The word name speaks of reputation. So Jesus is saying to them, I know your reputation among men. Everyone thinks you're an amazing church that is full of life. You yourself speak of your church as being very much alive. And you have carefully cultivated this reputation among men. But, Jesus says at the end of verse 1, you are dead. So this is a church that is not what it appears to be. There is a disjunct in the relationship between the reputation and the reality when it comes to this church. Things are not what they seem. Everyone thinks this church is alive, but Jesus looks at this church and says... You're dead. And given what Jesus is going to be saying in the next verse, we could paraphrase Jesus as speaking to this church of Sardis and saying, you are practically dead, or you are at the point of death. In his commentary on this passage, Dr. Robert Thomas suggests that Jesus is not saying here that this church is dead in an absolute sense but that it is on the verge of dying with the imminent possibility of losing the last spark of life and breathing its last. In the next verse, we're going to see that there are some remnants of life among them, which means that this church is not completely dead. But Jesus, here in verse 1, speaks with no nuance. He rattles their cage with this blunt and jarring assessment he tells them here that they are as good as dead and his intent in speaking this way is ultimately guys to rouse them awake and this brings us to the next act of jesus and seeking to motivate this practically dead church to wake up and overcome number three he calls upon them to wake up and repent he calls upon them to wake up and repent. Listen to what he says to them in verse 2 and 3. And notice the five commands that he gives to them. He says, beginning in verse 2, Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. The first command that Jesus gives to them is the command to wake up. 
literally Jesus is saying to them, become watchful such that they would get on alert and be watchful and then continue in that state of watchfulness. In the history of Sardis, they've been defeated by their enemies twice because they were not watchful. And Jesus does not want that to happen to this church. Secondly, he tells them to strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. So just from his language here, Jesus is telling them that he sees genuine remnants of life in them spiritually. He's calling them here to tend to these remnants of life and to strengthen them. In other words, he wants them to fan the dying embers within them so that those embers would burn hotter and break into flame again rather than dying out altogether. These embers are not dead yet, but Jesus is saying here that they're about to die and they're going to die if the Christians in Sardis do not invest themselves in strengthening the good that still as yet remains alive in them. It seems that there is still some knowledge of the truth among them. There is still some attachment to Christ. But that is about to die out altogether unless they wake up to the reality of their dangerous condition and strengthen what remains among them and in their lives that is good and of the Lord. Listen to Jesus' critique at the end of verse 2, which drives him to give the commands he's just given. He calls them to wake up and strengthen the things that remain. And then he says, For I have not found your deeds complete or completed in the sight of my God. It's hard to know exactly what Jesus means or is referring to here, but I think we can get some ideas. In leveling this criticism, Jesus is not saying that he sees nothing good in their deeds. He's saying that their deeds are not completed, or literally they're not filled up. These Christians in the church are doing some of what he was calling them to do, but not all that he had commanded them to do. Perhaps some of them had become aware of their desperate condition, and they were good at making resolutions to remedy their condition, and they had even set out to remedy their condition. But then they would never finish and carry through, resulting in half-accomplished reformations that never got completed. Perhaps Jesus is saying that their present good deeds lack the vitality that they should have. They are deeds that are designed to look good on the outside before men, but they are hollow on the inside. The deeds of these in the church of Sardis are like tree without sap. They are empty deeds rather than deeds that are packed with the life of God and the fullness of God being properly motivated by the grace of the gospel. Perhaps Jesus is faulting these in the church of Sardis for being selective in the good deeds that they were choosing to engage in. Perhaps they were good at doing good deeds that were most visible to others that served to enhance their reputation as being a really lively church. But they were slacking in the practice of deeds that were not so visible to others. Whatever Jesus is saying about the incompleteness of their deeds here, he wants them to know that this is not just his assessment. At the end of verse 2, he says, I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Jesus and the Father both agree that their deeds are lacking and are not completed or fulfilled. So the question is, how do they get to a place where they are sufficiently awakened in doing deeds that are complete in the sight of God and thereby keep themselves from dying out as a church. Jesus speaks to them in verse 3 and says, So 
remember what you have received and heard. Some of your translations have Jesus saying, remember how you have received and heard. And you could put the word what or how there. And it would fit with the expression in the Greek. Let's read it this way. So remember both what and how you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Now that raises the question, what is it that they have in the past received and heard? Most commentators will tell you that Jesus is speaking of the gospel of their salvation here. The gospel of salvation through Christ. Jesus is essentially pointing them back to the day of their conversion and calling upon them now to remember the gospel that they heard and received and also to remember how they received it with humble joy and eager faith and love for Christ. Jesus is calling upon them to remember the gospel truth that Christ came into the world to save sinners that he died for our sins and was buried and rose again on the third day and then ascended to the right hand of God. And that from that position, Jesus is giving out forgiveness of sins and righteousness and grace and love and relationship to everyone who looks to him as their Savior and calls upon his name. Jesus is wanting these members of the church of Sardis to remember the gospel that they had received in an earlier time with joy. And he's wanting them to remember the joyful enthusiasm and the tears with which they had received this great gospel. Just from this instruction, we can infer that the problem with the members of the church of Sardis is that Evidently, they had stopped remembering or being mindful of the gospel that they had received and heard. They had lost sight of the gospel. They had allowed it to slip from the center of their consciousness and from their preaching and teaching and their fellowship with one another. And they allowed other things and other causes to come in and to take the place of the gospel. These other notions and causes that they allowed to replace the gospel may have seemed exciting at the time and may have even created a whole lot of activity. But to the degree that they began to lose sight of the gospel, to that degree they as a church began to die. And Jesus is right now seeking to correct this fundamental error, calling upon them to go back and remember the gospel that they had received and heard, and to keep on remembering it in an ongoing way. And once they remember the gospel that they had received and heard, Jesus commands them to keep it, or just keep, to watch over it, to guard it, to keep their eyes on it, to keep watch over it. The way that someone keeps watch over a very precious piece of artwork in order to enjoy it and also to ensure that it never gets lost or stolen. In other words, as some of your translations say, to hold fast to it. And then finally, Jesus calls them to repent. To repent. And I want you to notice the order of his commands in this verse which are the opposite of what we probably would have expected. Most of us would have expected Jesus, I know I would have, to give the command to repent first. We would have expected him to say, repent and remember the gospel that you have received and heard and keep it. But Jesus doesn't speak this way. He mentions the call to repent last. After he's called them to remember the gospel and to keep it. And why is that? That's something worth pondering. The answer is because in the mind of Jesus, genuine, God-pleasing repentance emerges from or is birthed from a faithful remembering of the gospel that one has received and heard. 
if you are a Christian who has truly been saved by the Lord through the gospel, and you have since strayed from the Lord, and you now want to repent with a repentance that is pleasing to the Lord, then what you need to do first is not repent. What you need to do first is to remember the gospel of Jesus Christ and to put it in its rightful place in the center of your heart. And then you are ready to repent with a repentance that is shaped by this gospel. And this is what Jesus is calling upon the church of Sardis to do. Remember this gospel that they have received. Clutch on to it. Keep it in the center of their hearts. Hold fast to it. And then repent in a way that is shaped by gospel truths. What Jesus has said to them thus far should have been sufficient to help them to do the right thing in this situation. He has sought to stir them back to life through the gospel. But now he seeks to motivate them with a warning. And this brings us to the fourth act of Jesus as he seeks to motivate a practically dead church to wake up and overcome. Number four, he warns them of his sudden coming in discipline if they do not wake up. He warns them of his sudden coming to them in discipline if they do not wake up. When I was a kid, actually in high school, my mom would call from downstairs on a school day and tell us to wake up. I'd hear her call my name, wake up, Milton, and I would stay in bed, but I would let my left leg fall off the bed and let my foot hit the floor to where it sounded like I got out of bed. And my mom would hear my foot hit the floor and be, okay, he's up. But I'm still lying in bed with only my foot on the floor. And then some time would go by, she'd call me again. I'd do the same thing and then again. But when my mom got really desperate, she would send my dad upstairs. And boy, when I would hear my dad's voice and turn and see him looking at me, that put the fear of God in me and trust me I woke up and I got up and this is what Jesus is doing it is in their best interest that they wake up right he loves them he wants them to wake up and so he's tried to appeal to them through grace the grace of the gospel to wake up but if they're not going to wake up he here is giving them a warning he says in verse 3 therefore if you do not wake up I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. There are times in the New Testament when Jesus and other writers speak of him coming at his second coming as a thief in the night. But Jesus here is not speaking in this passage about his second coming, but about his coming to the church of Sardis in discipline if they don't repent. We know this because his promise is conditional. He says in verse 3, If you do not wake up, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. This warning from Jesus would easily cause them to think about their history, the history of their city of Sardis, Sardis was overcome twice, as I said, in its history because the people were not on the alert. The citizens of the city thought they were invincible and did not need to be watchful. So their enemy came in and overcame them while they slept, literally. And Jesus is saying to them, the biggest thing that you guys have to worry about right now is not some unknown enemy if you don't wake up, the person you need to worry about breaking into your church is me when I come to you in discipline to wake you up. The kind of warning that Jesus gives here makes me think of the warning that Paul gives to the Corinthian church when they were in a pretty bad place. In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 21, Paul says to them, What do you desire? 
Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Take your pick, Paul says. In 2 Corinthians 12.20, Paul warns them again and says, I am afraid that perhaps when I come to you, I may find you to be not what I wish, and that I may be found by you to be not what you wish for me to be. He then says a few verses later, I say in advance to those who have sinned that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. Speaking of his apostolic discipline, which he will wield for their ultimate spiritual good. And here in Revelation 3, Jesus is giving a similar kind of warning to these half-dead persons in the church of Sardis threatening to come to them in discipline if they don't wake up. And he's saying to them, if you don't wake up now in response to this letter that I am sending to you, I will come to you in discipline and I promise that you will wake up then. Having delivered this warning to the ones in this church who were almost dead, Jesus then takes the opportunity to speak a word of affirmation about the faithful souls in Sardis who were not like the majority. And this leads us to the fifth act of Jesus seeking to wake up a practically dead church and to motivate them to overcome. Number five, he recognizes and gives a promise to the faithful souls in Sardis. He recognizes and gives a promise to the faithful souls in Sardis. Observe what he says to them in verse 4. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Jesus' description here of the few should grab our attention because it's not the contrast that we would have expected, right? Given his assessment of most of the church members as being practically dead, you would expect Jesus to say, but you have a few people in Sardis who are alive. But that's not what Jesus says. Instead, he describes the few who are alive as those who have not soiled their garments So the majority who were practically dead are those who had polluted their garments and the few who were more spiritually alive had not polluted or soiled their garments. And this kind of language of pollution, defilement of garments reveals to us that the reason most people in this church were practically dead was because of sin that had polluted them, which is what Jesus is communicating through the metaphor of the soiled or polluted garments. And this is what sin does in all of our lives. Sin always results in death on various levels. In James 1.15, we're told that when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it comes to full term, brings forth what? Death. That's death in the life of the non-believer. But even in the life of believers, sin brings varying levels of death and loss. So, If you want to know the cause of the spiritual deadness that was plaguing the church of Sardis, the answer is sin. Evidently, they had begun to give sin a place in their life without repentance. And that sin had begun to do its deadly work in driving them further and further away from Christ. And eventually, many of them became as good as dead, receiving this diagnosis from Jesus here in Revelation 3. But regarding these faithful few in Sardis who had not polluted their garments with unrepentant sin, Jesus speaks a promise and says, they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. Jesus is saying that such individuals will enjoy companionship with him in heaven. And not only that, but he promises they will walk with me in white. 
White is the color of festivity and celebration and also of purity. In this passage, the white would stand for perfected holiness, completely free of any taint of sin. And we get this partly from Revelation 7.14 where the saints are said to be clothed with robes that are made white in the blood of the Lamb. And Jesus says those who have not polluted their garments, those few, they're going to walk with me in white for they are worthy. When he says they are worthy, Jesus is not saying that they have made themselves of their own worthy of that privilege. But he's saying that this is how he's going to deem them. Because he has made them fit recipients of this privilege. Because of his work of grace in them for which he gets all of the credit, Jesus is going to deem these Christians fitting recipients of the privilege of walking with him in white, in heaven, because they lived on earth in a way that was befitting to such a heavenly honor. And let's just linger on this thought for a minute. If you are a Christian, you need to live right now, today, and tomorrow, and the next day, as someone who will one day walk with Jesus in white in heaven. And now is the time for you and me to practice and rehearse for that eternal privilege that will be ours to enjoy. So that what we do with Him in heaven will simply be a continuation or a natural extension of what we were already doing with Him on earth from day to day. And here's a question for you who do not walk with Jesus now. But you say you want to go to heaven when you die. Why would you want to go to heaven when you die? Heaven involves walking with Jesus in white. So if you don't walk with him in righteousness now, why would you want to go to a place where that's what you will do then? If you don't find walking with Jesus in righteousness to be desirable now, why would you find it desirable then? Heaven is a place where... Those who walk with Jesus in white in the here and now will get to keep doing that forever in unmitigated fullness. And people who have no desire to do that in the here and now are not appropriate recipients of this heavenly honor. Here in verse 4, Jesus has given a tremendous promise to those few in Sardis who have not polluted their garments like the majority in the church have done. And his words of promise would be a great encouragement to these few. But his promise would have probably left the majority feeling discouraged. Leaving them thinking, is there any hope for me? Because I have polluted my garments. Does Jesus have any promise for me or have I lost out? Well, he does have a promise for them. And this leads us to the sixth act of Jesus as he seeks to wake up this practically dead church and help them to overcome. Number six, he promises great blessing to the one who overcomes. Observe what he says to them. He promises great blessing to the one who overcomes. Look at verse five. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. And I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. The glory of this promise, guys, is that the overcomer that Jesus is speaking about here in this verse includes those who have polluted garments, but who wake up and repent in obedience to Jesus' wake-up call. In fact, the promises of verse 5 are for all overcomers, those who overcame by never falling into the sins of the majority in the church of Sardis, and those who did fall into these sins, yet they repented and overcame their failure and experienced cleansing and deliverance through the blood of Christ. We've learned from Revelation 
12.11 that a person becomes an overcomer of Satan through the blood of the Lamb. In other words, you overcome Satan by putting your trust in Jesus Christ and His blood that was shed for you at the cross for your forgiveness of your sins. Think about this too. In 1 John 5, the Apostle John speaks to us and says, and I'm going to quote this literally, He says in 1 John 5, 4 and 5, Whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the overcoming that has overcome the world, our faith. And who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And, in the context of our passage today, you overcome even as a Christian, by believing in Jesus and trusting in His goodness when He comes to you to wake you up and to call you out of your sin and back to the gospel and to a gospel-shaped repentance. Do you trust or believe in Jesus enough to do that? If you do, you're an overcomer. Here in our passage today, Jesus is saying that the one who overcomes Satan and the world through faith in Christ and through his blood will thus be clothed in white garments. And the very righteousness of Christ in perfected heavenly holiness and the unmitigated festivity of heaven. And this promise applies, again, not just to those in Sardis who had never polluted their garments, but even those who... Head, but they obey Jesus' call to repent. They too will be clothed in white and will walk with Jesus gratefully in heaven. Regarding such an overcomer, Jesus makes another astonishing promise in verse 5. He says, And I will not erase his name from the book of life. I will not erase his name from the book of life. That's a promise that Jesus makes to the overcomer. The book of life is the heavenly book containing the registry of all those who are saved by Christ and who will enter into heaven. In Revelation 13.8, this book is called the Lamb's Book of Life. In Revelation 21.27, we're told that the people who will live in the New Jerusalem are only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Of life. And here in Revelation 3, Jesus is promising that he will never erase one of his overcomers' names from this book of life. In fact, we miss this in the English, but this promise from Jesus features a double negative in the Greek. Literally, Jesus is saying, I absolutely will not ever erase his name from the book of life, speaking about one of his overcomers. Now this is a wonderful promise, but I know the way that some of you think. You may hear this promise and think that it implies that the opposite outcome is possible. And so you read this promise and you're left asking, well, what if a Christian does not end up overcoming as he should? Will Christ erase that person's name from the book of life, causing that person who was once saved to lose their salvation and be shut out of heaven? The answer to this question is pretty straightforward. The Bible teaches us that all true believers in Christ will bear fruit befitting to salvation. And one of those fruits is that they will show themselves to be overcomers. Actually, you can represent the teaching of the New Testament in this way. A, Jesus will cause everyone whom he has saved to be an overcomer. Jesus will cause everyone he has saved to be an overcomer. And B, he promises that he will never remove an overcomer's name from the book of life. Consequently, no truly born-again believer in Jesus ever has 
or ever will have his name erased from the book of life because Jesus will see to it that they overcome through persevering in their faith in him. They may reach a low point like some of these Christians in Sardis did, but Jesus won't let them stay there just like he's not letting them stay where they are. He will pursue such a Christian and use passages like this to stir them in faith, to wake them up, to bring them back to the gospel and to enable them to persevere and thus to overcome. Jesus will never let the faith of a true believer die. As verse 5 comes to an end, Jesus speaks a, another promise about the overcomer and says, And I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Jesus is saying that he will not be ashamed to identify himself with someone who has overcome Satan and the world through faith in him and through repentance whenever they have fallen short. Jesus is not going to be ashamed to say that he knows such a person no matter how badly you have failed him, if you have repented and you keep looking to him and trusting in him to be your Lord and Savior, Jesus will not be ashamed to say in heaven before his Father that he knows you and has a relationship with you. Even if such a person is almost dead right now, like some in the church of Sardis, yet they wake up and remember the gospel and repent in obedience to Jesus' call. Jesus will not be ashamed to confess their name before his Father and his angels. Guys, imagine how thrilling it's going to be to hear Jesus speak your name in heaven while speaking to his Father and speaking to his holy angels. Dale Carnegie used to say that a person's name is to that person the sweetest and most important sound in any language. And that's often true. That's why whenever I meet a new neighbor in our neighborhood or a new person here at Cornerstone, I'll pray and ask God to help me to remember their name. Because people's names are important. What's impressive to me about Jesus is that he's going to have hundreds of millions, innumerable saved ones of his in heaven. And he's going to remember each one of our names. And there'll never be a pause like, uh, you know, no struggle. He will know all of our names immediately. Because our names are on his heart. And I guarantee you that there will be no sweeter sound to us in heaven than hearing our names on his lips when speaking to his Father and his holy angels. And we're so blessed to hear him give this promise to his overcomers here in verse 5. Is that not a Savior worth waking up for? Jesus' message to this church is an earnest one and a hopeful one that he wants all people to hear, which brings us to the seventh and final act of Jesus as he seeks to motivate this almost dead church to wake up and overcome. Number seven, he calls upon all to hear what the Spirit is saying through him. He calls upon all to hear what the Spirit is saying through him. Listen to what he says at the end of verse six. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus is saying several things here. He's saying everything I've just said is the Spirit also speaking. And Jesus is also saying that through this that he wants 
the Christians in the church of Sardis to hear everything that he has just said to them. Those that are right now practically dead and those who are being faithful and walking with him. He wants all of them to hear everything that he has just said. He also wants all the members of all seven churches of Asia Minor to hear every word that he has just spoken to the church of Sardis. And he is also calling upon you and me to listen in on this wake-up call and hear everything that the Spirit of God is saying to us through these words of Jesus to the church of Sardis. All in all, what we see in this passage is Jesus speaking to an almost dead church and seeking to rouse it back to life. He uses a vision of himself that John records in chapter 1. He speaks words, the words of this letter to them, which includes a blunt diagnosis of their condition. It includes a wake-up call, a call to remember the gospel, a call to repentance that is shaped by the gospel. He warns these Christians of discipline if they don't repent. And he also gives them crazy promises of blessing if they would repent and be the overcomers that he has saved them to be. This letter is an example of Jesus coming to a smoldering wick. And rather than extinguishing that smoldering wick altogether, or just letting it die out, Jesus seeks to rejuvenate the flame on that wick rather than letting it die out. The Bible teaches us that all True believers in Christ will persevere in faith to the end of their lives. And we see in our passage part of the reason why this is so. Because of the faithfulness of Jesus to pursue us when we have strayed from Him. The reason that believers in Jesus will persevere is because Jesus will never let the faith of a true believer die. And if he sees our faith weakening and dying out, he will come to us and he will fan the flame of faith in us so that our faith will live on and persevere. He will use his word. He'll use warnings. He'll use promises. He will rebuke us and may even discipline us. He may use a sermon or a Sunday school lesson or a care group discussion or a counseling session or a passage from the Bible that you have read, or a timely rebuke from a friend. He will use any necessary means to pour oil on the flame of his people's faith so as to ensure that their faith will never, ever die out. As John Bunyan says in Pilgrim's Progress, this is Christ, who continually with the oil of his grace maintains the work already begun in the heart, by the means of which, notwithstanding what the devil can do, the souls of his people prove gracious still. This is exactly what Christ is seeking to do for these Christians in Sardis. He's pouring oil onto the flame of faith in their hearts in an effort to quicken that flame back to the life that it should have. And there is actually evidence from church history that Jesus' words to the church of Sardis had their intended effect. Several decades after this letter was written, we know that the church of Sardis was still in existence and actually doing quite well. Church history tells us of a godly man who was serving as the bishop of the church of Sardis around 70 years after this letter was written. His name was Melatone, or you can call him Milton for short. <laughs> Melatone. He was a man noted for his faithfulness to the Lord and to the truth. He was a good pastor of this congregation he served as an eloquent apologist for the Christian faith during the reign of the emperor Marcus Aurelius. He provided the church, the ancient church, with one of the earliest lists 
of Old Testament books in the Christian canon of Scripture, and he also articulated a very balanced Christology to the great benefit of the ancient church. John MacArthur tells us that this very man, who was the pastor of the church of Sardis, wrote the earliest known commentary on passages from the book of Revelation itself. So it seems that the words of Jesus in this letter had their intended impact. The church woke up and repented and continued on in faith for their Lord. And Jesus' words from this letter can have their intended impact on you as well this morning. Perhaps you have never believed in Jesus And you are truly spiritually dead, completely spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins. Jesus comes to you in this letter today and he calls you to wake up and to believe in him and to become an overcomer through his blood that was shed for sinners just like you at the cross. Call upon him even this morning where you're seated and believe in him. Perhaps you have believed in Jesus and yet you have allowed sin to creep its way into your life and bring about a deadening that you can't seem to break out of. Well, Jesus comes to you this morning and he speaks bluntly to you. He calls you to wake up and to strengthen the things that remain. He calls you to remember the gospel which you have received and heard and then to repent with the repentance that is shaped by this gospel. Because He loves you. He, in this passage, warns you of discipline if you don't give heed to His wake-up call. And He also gives you unblushing promises of tremendous blessing and reward if you will Give heed to his call and act like the overcomer that he has saved you to be. And I ask you again, is that not a savior worth waking up for? Wherever you're at, is a savior like this who speaks in this way, who chases after you when you stray from him and calls you to wake up, is this not a savior worth waking up for? I hope you know that he is. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for this text of Scripture. There are certain ways that you speak in this passage that prove challenging to some of our theological categories. And it might be tempting for us to over-explain certain things to make them more palatable. But Lord, help us to just sit with what You say and with how You say it. And let these words sink in deep into each one of us and have their intended impact. When I look at this text, I think of all the times that I have strayed from you and I have failed to nourish my spiritual life and my life with you has diminished and I have grown far from you and yet you have pursued me in my sin and you have loved me and yes, you have spoken hard things to me in such moments, but at least you were talking to me. I deserve to have been abandoned by you. And yet, Lord, you chase after us in our sin, in our deadness, and you summon us to wake up and be the overcomers that you have saved us to be. And I pray that if there's any here this morning, Lord, who do not know you, they've never experienced salvation through Jesus Christ and his shed blood, I pray that you would touch their hearts and and awaken the dead this morning. And give them the gift of faith that they would believe in you. For any who do belong to you, Lord, but they have strayed from you, I pray that they would feel the love in a passage like this, the love of a Savior 
who pursues the wayward and that they would hear your call to them and wake up and remember the gospel, that they would break out of the spell of sin and remember the gospel and then repent in a way that is shaped by this gospel. And thus, come to life as it were and experience richer levels of life of walking with you. You're a good Lord and a good Savior and you're worth waking up for. And we praise your name this morning for all these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen.